Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Like sometimes I feel like I can bend the universe with my vagina. <laughs> it almost feels like you've taken the most delicious nap. Uh, very, very effective for relieving stress as well. I want menopause to have a rebrand, actually. I want you to look at menopause as like the second spring. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Hello, Bettys. I wanted to record this solo episode all on perimenopause because there are so many questions. 
I had recently put out a poll on Instagram asking, what would you like to know about perimenopause? And mother of Isis. It was like, what is perimenopause? When does it start? How do we prepare for it? How do we know we're in it? What are the action steps that we need to have mastered in order to prepare for it? Tell me all about progesterone creams. Tell me about bioidentical hormones. Tell me, tell me, tell me. So I, there were literally hundreds of questions that came in. And what I wanted to do was have a solo episode answering all of these questions, hopefully clearing up a lot of confusion and potentially gaps in your knowledge around perimenopause, and then giving you the why and the what. And then of course, the clinician in me is also going to give you the how, right? So I want to give you some of the action items. That was a couple of questions that came in as well. It's like, hey doc, love the science, but also tell us exactly what to do. So I'm, I'm also going to be including that in this episode as well. So let's start with what it is. Okay. So many of you had asked questions around, uh, stubborn weight gain. Like what I'm doing now is, you know, in my forties, let's say, or my fifties is no longer working for me. I'm putting on weight through my belly. I'm putting on more weight than I ever have. And I'm literally doing the same thing, or I'm experiencing brain fog or anxiety, hot flashes, emotional swings, libido changes. What are the supplements? What are the hormones that are affected and how do I stop this? And let me tell you, I got you, girl. Okay. We are going to, all of this is going to be answered um, today. So let's just start off with a couple of definitions. So perimenopause can feel, if you're not sort of prepared for it, it can feel like you're walking across, you know, landmines, right? If you're not set up properly. So, um, I'm going to give you some definitions and then I'm going to give you some action items. So classically, a definition around perimenopause is, and again, this is kind of a loosey-goosey definition, but somewhere in your mid-30s, okay, so I just have an arbitrary cutoff at about 35, we start to see a noticeable and persistent change in our hormone levels. And namely, and primarily in our 30s and early 40s, it is a a persistent decline in progesterone. So progesterone is the hormone that is produced in the second half of your menstrual cycle. It can only be uh, released and produced after ovulation. And what we can start to run into in our 30s and in our 40s is a mismatch or an unbalance, let's say, or an imbalance, I should say, rather, between estrogen in the luteal phase of the cycle and progesterone in the luteal phase of the cycle. We want to think about progesterone and estrogen sort of as yin and yang, Thelma and Louise. Progesterone keeps estrogen in check. So we love estrogen, right? Estrogen is great. It's an anabolic hormone. It does a lot of wonderful things things in the body, but we also sort of the golden rule of estrogen is use it and then lose it. We kind of don't want it to hang around. And one of the things that progesterone does like a mother duck in a way is to downregulate estrogen, both from the, uh, on the receptor side and then the total amount of estrogen produced in the luteal phase of the cycle. So 
Let's back it up a little bit and say, okay, well, that sounds great. So in my mid thirties, I get it. Progesterone starts to decline, but certainly, um, as a clinician, uh, you'll hear this, uh, any, with any clinician that's worth their salt will tell you that there's a huge amount of bio individuality, right. And variability, uh, between patients in terms of what constitutes normal for them. So how do you know what's normal for you? Well, in an ideal world, you know, if there's sparkles and rainbows and unicorns uh, everywhere, you would have already taken some baseline measurements of your sex hormones at some point in your 20s or 30s. Or if you have a daughter and you are thinking about how you can maybe change the trajectory of your daughter's life in her twenties or thirties, maybe you also want to consider taking some baseline measurements of her sex hormones. If you have a daughter, uh, who's in her teenage years, it's not, uh, as useful, uh, in the teenage years because there is a large variability in young women, uh, in terms of their menstrual cycle in their, in their teens. Um, um, if you or your daughter's menstrual cycle, even in her teens or your teens are like clockwork, then potentially you can, you can totally measure then. But for the most part, there is quite a bit of variability in our teenage years, particularly around like 16, 17, 18. We've talked about this on the podcast before where, uh, a, a young woman in, you know, 16, 17, 18 starts to see some changes. Maybe she skips a couple of uh, cycle. She doesn't ovulate. She doesn't have a period. And then, you know, we've talked about why this is sort of a dangerous time, uh, where the birth control pill might be recommended to her as a medium to correct that when really that is just part of her natural progression in the same way that, you know, when we are learning a new skill, right? Like we don't, um, you know, we don't menstruate perfectly from the time that we start menstruating. Sometimes there's a little bit of variability. There's sometimes there's a hormone surge around that 16, 17, 18 year old kind of time. So I would say take some baseline measurements, twenties and th- or thirties. And If you haven't done that, if you're like, oh man, like I'm 42 and I've never done that before. I've never even considered that not to worry. The best time to have taken some baseline work is in your twenties and thirties. And the second best time to take it is right now. So you can, after listening to this show, you can either go to your uh, primary healthcare provider. That might be a medical doctor. That might be a naturopathic doctor. That might be a functional medicine provider, and they can order some testing for you to take a look at your progesterone levels. And I would say the full complement of sex hormones. I would be looking at estrogens. I'd be looking at testosterones. I would also be doing a full thyroid panel as well. And what I'll do, uh, I've, I've created a, a, a lab PDF primarily for practitioners that I train, but I'll, I'll include that in the show notes for you. So there's a, gosh, I don't know how many pages it is. It's, it's a lot of pages. It's, you know, if if you know me, I'm little miss overprepared. So I've created uh, a lab reference PDF where it goes through and teaches clinicians when they should be telling their patients to, for example, look at luteinizing hormone or follicular stimulating hormone. Like there's a certain time of the month that we want to be looking at that. Or if you're looking at thyroid hormone, for example, we don't want to be taking uh, measurements of our thyroid in the afternoon. We want to be taking it ideally before 
uh, you know, before 9am would be ideal, but some labs don't open until nine. So before 10am is sort of the cutoff that, um, that I give. So I will include that in the show notes, um, for you, but, um, this would be, so my preferred route is you have a baseline measurement twenties and thirties. If you don't, not to worry, you can, you know, you can take that, uh, this week if you'd like. And I'll also share with you, you know, when I myself was in chiropractic school, if I took, and I was in my twenties, um, during chiropractic school, if I took my baseline hormones, then I would have looked like a pile of garbage. You know, I was, you know, wasn't sleeping, wasn't exercising, you know, obviously ironic because I'm in a health, you know, health professional program and literally the most unhealthy that I have ever, ever been not moving, not eating well, uh, really at times feeling buried under the volume of work. So, uh, even maybe if you're going through a program like that, um, I know certainly a lot of professional programs, chiropractic school, naturopathy, medicine, uh, lawyers. I mean, this is, these are very, uh, intense programs. So if you or your daughter, let's say is in one of those programs, not to worry, wait until she's done. <laughs> Maybe she takes a gap year and then you take the, you take the measurements then. So as we progress through our forties, as I mentioned, we see progesterone starting to decline. We will also start to see estrogen levels more in our forties start to go a little wonky as well. So sometimes it's a straight decline more often than not women will experience, uh, we'll say wilder vacillation. So, you know, you'll have a surge of estrogen and then a drop of estrogen and then a surge of estrogen and a drop of estrogen. And that is where we can start to experience uh, more classic symptoms like the hot flashes, like the sleep disturbances, like the sweating through our clothes overnight, etc. So I share that with you partly as a, here's what the clinical picture might look like, and certainly understanding that there's going to be some bio-individuality there, but also for you to not misinterpret your experience when you get there, right? So if you are somebody who... Um, let's say is experiencing a hot flash and you've, you don't even know what it is. You're like, God, it was so hot. And like, now I'm so sweaty and you know, what's happening. I don't want you to misinterpret your experience and know that there are solutions that we are going to be outlining today that are going to help you. Okay. So symptoms of low progesterone, right? So let's give you the clinical picture so that you don't misunderstand or misinterpret your experience. So in our, I said, mid thirties, kind of progressing to our, uh, you know, early forties and really until we reach menopause and and beyond, we see the steady uh, decline in progesterone. So what you may see, uh, if you're someone who's trying to get pregnant, you may Notice that you're having, you'll very much notice this if you're trying to get pregnant, difficulty getting or staying pregnant. You may see breakthrough bleeding or spotting. So um, in the in the second half of your menstrual cycle, so in that luteal phase when you shouldn't be bleeding, you might see spotting um, in that, you know, before you get your period and that what that's indicating is there's not enough progesterone to actually maintain the endometrial lining there. Uh, your emotional, uh, symptoms might be heightened. Uh, a lot of women will complain about migraines or very severe headaches right before they bleed. So we call these menstrual migraines. When you do 
get your period, you may notice that the flow, the, the it's very, very heavy flow. And this is partly because estrogen has gone unchecked. It hasn't been downregulated by progesterone. Um, you may also notice that your menstrual cycles in and of themselves are shorter. And then I would say most subtly is the experience of increasing anxiety and depression, potentially the inability to withstand a lot of stress. And this is more subtle and usually shows up for women somewhere between 40 and 45 years of age. Some women will complain of feeling more angry or feeling like the world is against you. And certainly that's, you know, uh, supported often and unfortunately by social media. You may feel like not wanting to dress up or not wanting to socialize or, you know, to see your friends, right? You may notice that your ambition levels are waning where before you might've been like that go, 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 that huntress who, that huntress who is like always on the move, always looking for the next kill. And now you're noticing that that level of drive is starting to drop. You may notice that you don't want to be touched or snuggled, right? So by your partner, by your kids, like you're just kind of wanting to be left alone. A lot of you were speaking to me about um, libido and sex drive. So the not wanting to be touched and snuggled, obviously not noticing through the cycle, a, uh, a bump up in your libido around or right just before ovulation, but even just like the whole way through feeling just kind of flat, like not really wanting sex, wanting to enjoy it in any capacity. Other symptoms might include consistently waking up at night, whereas before you might've been sleeping all the way through the night. Now you're waking up usually between that two and 4 a.m., time. And I'll talk about why that might be in a moment. Difficulty concentrating. That's another one feeling like you can't focus on a task and our phones actually make that they highlight and they make that even worse. One of the things that we're starting to see now is more of this kind of digital dementia where we're checking Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is like, you know, 50, a hundred times a day. Um, and then other general pain. So more back pain, more neck pain. Certainly women are much more susceptible to more neck pain in general, uh, from a mechanical standpoint, I'll give you kind of the why here. Um, but a woman's neck tends to be a little bit longer than that of our male counterparts. And so when we're looking actually at the structure of the neck, we actually want it to look like a backward C. So this is something that we call a lordotic curve in the neck. Now with the, with phone use, with computer use, with sedentary sort of sitting down, uh, for long periods of time with our head shifted anteriorly and often the chin, uh, uh, tipped down, it is, uh, much more common for a woman or much easier, I should say, it's easier for a woman to destroy that lordotic curve in the neck than it is for a male. So we start to see, uh, degenerative joint and degenerative disc disease. We start to see osteophytic growth, which are basically these sort of spindles, these like almost tooth like projections that come off of the bone that can start impeding into sort of surrounding structures. And then initially what that might present as headaches, constant tension in the neck and shoulder area. The low back is another area for that as well because of the same orientation of the curve there. So in the neck and in the low back, so L1 to 
call it L5 or S1, uh, really there should also be a lordotic curve as well. But for women in particular, because the necks of women are longer, the, the neck area is where I typically will see a woman between 40 and 45 saying like, I don't know, man, I just have these headaches, neck tension, chronic neck pain, shoulders, etc. Those are some of the more subtle um, symptoms, let's say, of menopause. Um, the other thing that I mentioned that I think is worth repeating and worth highlighting is that you feel, you feel like you used to be able to deal with an enormous amount of things, right? Like you could, you could have the body, the business, the bank account, you know, the boyfriend, like all the bees, right? And you were, um, you were able to deal with this large swath of different verticals in your life. And now you just feel like you can't handle anything. Like now you just get overwhelmed by mess in the house or you get overwhelmed by needing to do laundry or whatever. So I think that it's worth highlighting. It's a very subtle shift. Like that in and of itself is not diagnostic, right? But just for you to sort of see some of the subtle ways that progesterone can, or a declining or waning progesterone levels can impact the way that we experience our day-to-day life. Um, That might mean, you know, your kids, you just can't handle the kids fighting, or you just, you know, you are feeling more and more repulsed by your partner. So those are some of the classic, we'll say subtle symptoms of menopause, and I'll say um, perimenopause more accurately. One of the big questions was like, hey, what are the phases of perimenopause? Like, how do I know that I'm in it? And I typically break perimenopause down into four phases. Okay. So the first phase is where you are still regular. You still are ovulatory, meaning that you're still having a period, but what you're noticing is that the totality of the cycle. So the menstrual cycle now begins to shorten. So maybe you used to be like a 29, 29 day girl, you know, for 30 years, let's say. And now you're noticing that your cycle is like 27 days or 26 days, right? But it's still regular. You're still ovulatory. You're still ovulating, still having a period that will, that will, that will transpire over several years. The second phase is where your menstrual cycle now starts to become more irregular. So you're not, you're not having a period every month. You are skipping periods. So that means that you are also having times where you are not ovulating, right? So in order to bleed, you need to have ovulated, right? And that also, again, coming back to this idea of waning progesterone, you can't start secreting progesterone unless you've ovulated. So that menstrual cycle that has now shortened, now you start skipping. Now you start having irregular cycles. You're like, well, I had one you know, last month, who knows what's going to happen this month. I may or may not. The third phase is now cycles are lasting much longer. So they can last as long as 60 days. You may be experiencing some of those symptoms that we've been talking about. So like the hot flashes, the sleeplessness, um, the general drop in libido. I didn't actually mention, uh, in terms of perimenopausal symptoms, I'll come back to this for a moment with respect to libido. Um, not only do we have a drop in desire, for sex, but when we are engaging in sex, if we kind of get around to it, whether uh, it may be with ourselves or with partners, is that we also may experience 
dryness, so vaginal dryness, poor lubrication, uh, with penetration and, um, yeah, so it can take a little bit longer, let's say, to 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 warm up and to properly lubricate, especially if you're thinking about having penetrative sex. So, just like a a little kind of pro tip for you that if you are if you do have a regular sex life or you are hoping to maintain a regular sex life, it is going to take you and your partner potentially a little longer. Uh, foreplay in terms of foreplay before you kind of jump into, um, if there is penetrative sex on the menu, um, you may want to have more, more foreplay prior to that activity. Okay. And then, so we've talked about the third phase. So menstrual cycles now lasting as long as 60 days. And then the fourth phase of perimenopause is like, you're just kind of in the waiting room, <laughs> sort of like the menopausal waiting room, la salle d'attente, as they might say in French. So you're in the waiting room to see if this was, if that last period was your last. So you may be four months in, five months in, where you may have not had a period for four or five, maybe six months. And uh, this uh, waiting room, if you will, is... Um, gosh, it's, it's frustrating because we can't, you only qualify for men, like the menopause diagnosis, let's say if you've had 12 consecutive months without a period. So you may actually go four months and then get your period again. Right. And then, you know, and then you have to start again and you sort of have to wait. So this is the waiting room, uh, the salle d'attente, uh, the waiting room, the perimenopausal menopausal waiting room. So those are the four general phases of menopause. And we will, you know, kind of slowly transition our way from one to two to three to four um, between the years of 35 and, you know, on average, 52, 53, which is usually the, I think that the average onset of menopause for women is about 51, 51 or 52. Um, but obviously it's going to vary. We can you know, looking at when, if you know your mother, when she started bleeding and when, you know, when her first period, uh, when she first got her first period, and then when she finished in menopause can give you kind of a general idea, but her life and the, um, call it, uh, toxicants and the environmental stressors were very different than the ones that we deal with today. We're actually seeing women earlier and earlier and earlier start their periods. So for me, gosh, I, I don't know exactly the, the year that I started. I want to say I was maybe 14, 13, something like that. And now we're seeing, uh, girls who are eight and nine, um, starting to menstruate, which, uh, I think is too young, um, but there are many multi, that's a multifactorial sort of a separate conversation in terms of why that might be happening. Okay. So hopefully that is a definition, uh, what it is, when it starts, how do we know we're in it? What are the subtle and not so subtle signs of perimenopause? Let's talk about some action items. There was one particular uh, woman on my feed that was like, I love all your science, but just tell me what to do. Like, give me the how. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the how and the now. So there are a couple of ways that I want to approach this. Um, 
The first is probably the most important and it's the one that everyone's going to (laughs) hate. And I say that with love because if you are someone who is trying to tackle perimenopause, you are trying to understand it, uh, it is very likely that... um, it is, we may be looking, and, and I, this was sort of evidenced by the questions that I had. It was like, tell me the one supplement. And let me tell you, we're going to go on a supplement geeky magic carpet ride today. Like I have some really great supplements that I want to talk to you about. But if you're looking only for supplementation, you're missing the point. Okay. So supplementation is important. Not saying that we're not going to supplement. How? ever. We want to be thinking first and foremost, first and foremost, above all else, above all supplements, above above all exercise regimes, above all nutrition, you want to be thinking about stress management. I know. (laughs) It's like, oh God, I have to think about stress. Just tell me the supplement. That's way easier, right? Um, But perimenopausal women, so a woman, let's say between the ages of call it 35 to 52, as we've been loosely defining, very unique time in her life where she has unique stressors that are coming from below and also coming from above. And when I say below, you know, maybe her kids are preteen teenagers in their twenties, you know, kind of depending on how early you had them. And they are, I mean, Lord knows teenagers. I mean, bless them, (laughs) bless their little underdeveloped brains, but they think that they know everything. And of course we know that they don't, right? So their frontal lobe is not developed yet, uh, but they certainly have the language acquisition. They can fight back and they, they usually have, um, you know, really smart mouths. They can, they know where to, they know what to say and they know how to hurt you. Uh, not speaking from personal experience at all. Of course I am. Um, but yeah, perimenopausal women, when we're thinking about stressors from below, you know, our kids can be as much as we love them. This point, their transition into, you know, teenage, their teenage years and into their young adult requires them to kind of separate from us and to, in some, you know, in some cases, rebel. And when we talk about rebellion, like really rebel. So I think for women, um, at least this is, seems to be consistent with a lot of the women that I talk to that there's almost a grieving that happens, right? It's like our babies are no longer babies anymore. We have to, uh, you know, we might be find ourselves looking at baby photos or reminiscing. And I think that, um, you know, Jennifer Kalari, who I've had on the show twice, I uh, had her on a couple of years ago, but she's a fabulous resource for how to continue connecting with your teens. Actually, one of our episodes was just on how to connect with your teens. So we'll make sure that that, that link, that episode's in the show notes. But There's a grieving that has to happen where we are seeing our babies, you know, that we birthed, that were completely helpless and 100% dependent on us for their primary, for their survival. Now being able to go out with their friends and drive a car and maybe they're able, they're eligible to vote and all of these different things. And then maybe there's, they've fallen into some trouble. Maybe they're not, they're having challenges with school and God knows COVID didn't help with that. Thank you, government. Thank you, COVID. Thank you, lab leak, all the things, right? Like 
my, my teenager had a really rough go being at home. Like it really does matter for teenagers to be with their peers. So you may have had a teenager who really suffered during the pandemic. Maybe there's some learning delays or gaps in their knowledge that shouldn't you know, that you're trying to correct, maybe they've fallen in with the wrong, wrong crowd. Like there's so many different permutations, but the point is, is that we have these stressors from our children. And then we also have stressors from above, right? So now uh, with us being in our forties, let's say 40, we'll call it just 45, sort of in the middle of 35 and 52, you know, or wherever you are in that, in that age range. Now we're starting to see our parents run into, or care, primary caregivers run into health issues as a function of aging, right? So we may see, uh, more dementia. We may see, um, you know, diseases that we need to help support them with, or maybe we are ourselves becoming their primary caregivers. And so now we have this added stress. We have our teenagers or, you know, pseudo, you know, uh, not pseudo teenagers. What's the word there? Preteens. We have the preteens, the teenagers, maybe the early 20, like young adults, um, who, are putting, or there's an increased demand there. And then there's an increased demand from above with our, with our parents. So this is very unique because this is at no other time in our life was this ever really the case. When we first had our children, you know, hopefully your parents were a little younger. They didn't need as much attention, uh, didn't need as much assistance maybe that they do now. And so, where we used to be able to like deal with all of these different messes, we'll say, uh, chaos, entropy. Now we have this coupled with the hormonal changes that I was just describing with the decrease in progesterone and the decrease in ambition, decrease in drive, decrease in libido, decrease in all of these things that actually help us feel relaxed. Progesterone is now waning And now we just find ourselves unable to deal with the demands of the current stage of our life. So highly recommended here as an action item for you to figure out what are some of the stress relieving practices that you can engage in every single day, every damn day, Betty, okay, to help you feel centered in your body, but also something that is going to, uh, augment your resilience to stress that inevitably is coming at you that day, right? So just assume that there's going to be some demand from your kid, from your parent, from work, from partner, from whatever. Um, and then there's also very likely the accumulation of stressors that you have been, uh, you know, aggregating with you over the past, call it 35 years, right? So we have like new stress and old stress, right? And then we have kid stress and parent stress. So what that stress relieving, uh, practice is going to look like is going to be very different for everyone. But I do have some suggestions because this is really where I want you to have a flexible, open mind, and the I'm inviting you, should you feel called to, um, you know, this is not a requirement, but if you, I'm inviting you, should you hear the call to play with some of the different 
uh, stress management techniques. And I'll also share some of the things that have really worked for me. So many of my patients, many of the women that I speak to, uh, have found meditation and breath work to be incredibly helpful. And I would agree with them. Um, and again, I have a couple of resources that will make sure go in, into the show notes, but we've had Jen Mansell on the show. She is my breathwork facilitator, best in class, in my opinion. We've also had Sam Skelly on the show as well. Another really great uh, breathwork facilitator. And then we've had Emily Fletcher on maybe one, probably two or three times now on the show on meditation. Now, I will always dish it up to you straight. Uh, I will never lie to you. Uh, I find as beneficial as it is when I do it, I find meditation hard. I find it hard to be consistent with. I always feel better when I do it, but I seem to, for whatever reason, have this incredible limbic friction and resistance to doing it consistently. Um, I can't explain to you why it just is what it is. So every time I think about doing meditation, there's this little voice in my head that's like, Oh, you know, like there's like, you don't really need to do that. Um, and so I do meditation, but I don't do it as often as I should to be getting rid of the old stress, let's say that I've accumulated in my life, as well as the current demands that I have as a 45 year old woman. Now I will say breath work. This is a different story. This is the, this is the, this is the heavyweight champ for me. Um, I find it very helpful Again, I do have that limbic resistance and this is just like the death of my ego. Basically, that's what it is, right? Like my ego is like, no, but when you're stressed out, that's your competitive advantage. You like to be stressed. You want to be stressed, right? So I understand that that is what's happening, but I seem to be able to get to my breathwork practice more consistently than I do my meditation. Sorry, Emily. Um, but it just, it just is what it is. And Breathwork is interesting because I never know what kind of session I'm going to have. I don't know if any of you, I hope this is not just me, but sometimes I feel like I meet my sadness, right? So when I do breath work, it's like, there's my sad inner person. Like there's my sad, you know, inner girl who's just crying and asking and begging for my attention. And then I just cry the whole time. Um, that happens that happens a lot where as I'm releasing, I am crying and there's a lot of, there's a lot of sadness that I am uh, metabolizing. And then other times, God, I mean, it's like a sexual experience and I feel, you know, I've, I've said this sort of privately to, um, some of my, uh, women in my mastermind. Like sometimes I feel like I can bend the universe with my vagina like when I have these breathwork, um, experiences. So I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, but just know that it's, it's kind of like if any of you've ever tried, let's say psychedelics, uh, it's kind of like mushrooms where it's sort of like, it brings up what you need to be brought up, um, at the time. So a lot of, a lot of my work is, uh, has been softening to, or surrendering maybe is a better word to what, whatever is. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging. Well, 
I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So meditation, breath work, um, uh, there's also, I mean, I've, I've tried and I still recommend uh, CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy, talk therapy for some people might work. Didn't work for me. Uh, I actually overwhelmed my therapists. <laughs> How's that for a zinger? Uh, yeah, but my, my therapists were like overwhelmed by me. So uh, CBT just wasn't, it just didn't happen to be the, the, the vehicle for me, but that's not to say that it's not effective. Of course, it can end you should definitely try it to see if that is something that is useful and, um, say palatable to, uh, to your own healing. I don't talk about it a ton because I I feel like in a way it's like, it's not as useful, but I grew up in a, in a, an environment, let's say in a household that was very psychologically stressful, very physically stressful for me. And it's had, say long lasting effects, um, that I am still unraveling, but long lasting effects on my ability to trust, um, my faith in humanity, my ability to open up and be myself. Um, I am really leaning into that now, just saying what I mean, meaning what I say and not hiding my opinion anymore. And in order for me to get to the place where I am now, um, one of the other modalities that has been useful for me, double underline highlight for me, I'm not recommending it for everyone, um, is the use of psychedelic therapy. Again, we've had psychedelic therapists on the show. Um, Kelly Ramsden uh, was on the show. We'll make sure that we link out to that, to our conversation. Uh, Jason Prawl, I also had a fabulous conversation with Jason on psychedelics. Um And the way that I, it wasn't just like, Hey, we're going to do some Molly and dance. It was, you know, I, it was in a therapist's office, two sitters in the same way that they are, um, you know, structuring with the maps, um, uh, protocol. So set an intention, did a lot of integration, uh, work afterwards. And I would say that that sad, um, let's say abandoned, wounded, scared little girl, um, I am learning to, and I'm still learning because I'm not a finished product yet, but still, uh, what I've done is I've, I've created a relationship, let's say with that, with that neural network, with that neural node, that, that girl that lives, uh, in my psyche so that she feels more seen and more loved, 
um, and more heard rather than me duct taping her and throwing her in the trunk of the car or throwing her in my, the dungeon of my mind mansion, uh, and leaving her unattended for years, which is what I did. Yeah. Psychedelics really took, uh, at least for me, um, my anxiety down quite a bit. I used to have a lot of anxiety attacks. Um, and it allowed me to see my circumstances, not from a first person singular, if you will, um, but from a third third person plural. So it almost took me from being the main character in the play, like everything is happening to me. And it took me out of the play entirely and took me into the audience so that I could see how uh, some of the driving factors for some of the people who did some of the things that they did to me, why they did the things that they did. Does that mean that I'm letting them off the hook? Does that mean that I'm justifying their actions? No, but it's giving me a perspective that, or what psychedelic use, let's say, has given me is a perspective on why um, it happened um, in the first place. So there's more understanding. And then that sort of opens up, at least for me, that has opened up the possibility for forgiveness, whether or not I speak to them, these individuals ever again, doesn't matter. Um, but the the forgiveness is more for me than it is for them. Right. Um, I remember reading somewhere that, um, oh, I'm going to totally butcher it, but it was, it was something like, um, resentment is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die, right? So are we are we holding on to resentment for any reason? Is it doing more harm than good at this point in our 30s or 40s or 50s? Is there a mechanism or a way, a path that we can think about letting it go with the learnings that came with it, right? So with all the good comes the bad, right? So all the psychological, let's say, stress that I was under also made me an incredibly driven person, right? So I knew that I didn't want to stay in that uh, environment. And I actually moved out of out of my home very, uh, very early. And that it's like sink or swim, right? So I have a I have a very, um, I'm very thankful uh, in a way for that experience, because I'm, I'm very driven. And I'll often joke like half jokingly that I'm like a cockroach. Like if there's going to be a nuclear (laughs) like meltdown, like it's going to be me and the cockroaches because I'm going to find a way to survive. So in, in that way, I feel very grateful, even though it was very painful for me at the time. And I felt like I didn't even like for many years, I didn't even feel like I fit in anywhere. I felt like I didn't have a place here on earth? Like, what was the point? Um, do I even matter? Um, if like, if my parents can't, or my, you know, caregivers, my parents can't, uh, you know, did these things to me, um, why, why am I even here? Like, I just must be worthless, that kind of thing. Right. And it's even hard for me to kind of say those words to you, but I'm sharing this with the hope, um, that, it will motivate you, whatever has happened to you, what, whatever myriad of stressors that you have dealt with in your life, that it will, it is my hope for you that you will find a stress practice. So that could be breath work. It could be journaling. It could be box breathing. It could be meditation. It could be a, it could be a therapist. It could be, you know, a trusted friend, a counselor, a community leader, um, somewhere that you feel safe, seen and heard 
that you can express yourself and maybe get some guidance on what to do with some of the feelings and the experiences and the, and the derivatives that you've taken from those experiences as well. The last action item I'll share, and this is something that I also love and I recommend to almost everyone is something called yoga nidra. So if you are thinking, Oh God, is she talking about yoga? I'm not, it's uh, well, I guess technically it is, it is non-sleep deep rest. Okay. So it's yoga nidra is another word for it. All you have to do is just Google yoga nidra or non-sleep deep rest on, on YouTube. You are just lying down, listening to prompts. And there's a couple of them that I really like. They're about 10 minutes long. Uh, you just have to try not to fall asleep. I like to do it around two o'clock in the afternoon where I have more tabs open on my computer than I would like to admit. And I'm just literally, I find myself aimlessly switching between all the tabs. Yoga Nidra is free if you have access to uh, internet or a phone. If you're listening to this podcast, you have access to YouTube, I'm assuming. Um, and very, very, very effective. So this is also getting rid of old stress. It feels like it, it almost feels like you've taken the most delicious nap and, um, uh, very, very effective for relieving stress as well. So that is kind of the first pillar, right? Nothing else matters. And I, and I mean this, I mean, I'm going to give you nutrition stuff. I'm going to give you exercise stuff. I'm going to give you supplement stuff. I'm going to give you all the juicy stuff, but I'm, I, I hope that you will heed my w- not warning, but, um, my advice that if you don't manage your stress, it really doesn't matter. Everything after this point in the podcast, um, you can certainly make improvements in body composition. You can certainly make improvements in, you know, strength gains and, and all the things. But if you are living in a body that you hate, or you are just hating your life, there's really no point in talking about longevity. There's really no point in talking about optimizing health span if you hate the life you're living or you are stuck in the past. So I say that with love because sometimes the people who love you the most uh, need to give you the toughest um, stuff that maybe you're not necessarily willing to hear. So I hope that that lands with you in a way that is, um, loving, uh, and comes from a good place. Just know that it comes from a good place. However, uh, however insulted you may be right now. (laughs) Okay. All right. So let's move on to exercise. Um, this is another actually way that I manage my stress is by moving my body every single day. It is literally the first thing that I do every morning. It's a non-negotiable. I have a date with the squat rack or whatever, you know, body part I'm working. I have a date at the gym with myself every morning. Um, if you've listened to me for more than a minute, you know that I am a huge let me do my best Donald Trump here. Huge. Okay. That was horrible, but okay. Huge fan of resistance training. So what I want to talk about a little bit today is giving you kind of the science around it, but also giving you the action items. Cause I know like a lot of you are like, I love it. Yes. You love resistance training. Like what is the, How do I do it? How do I work out? So the principle that we're going to be talking about today is the idea of progressive overload, right? As a function of trying to grow muscles. So as a perimenopausal woman, your goal from a movement program perspective is going to be to try and maintain 
at a bare minimum, MVP, right? Minimum viable product. The MVP here is that you are maintaining muscle mass, right? Lean body mass, which includes muscle and bone mass and organ uh, mass as well. Ideally, it's to add to it. Okay. So ideally you want to be putting on muscle. Okay. So here's the action item. So if possible, you're going to find a trainer. Uh, I would say a female, that's my bias, but that's not to say that male trainers don't know. I just have always the feedback that I I've, I've had male and female trainers. So I, I have had, you know, I, I don't, I don't discriminate based on that, but I've, I've had a lot of feedback from women who have said to me, they, let's say we're training with a guy and then the guy put them on some like 1200 calorie, you know, program, didn't consider their menstrual cycle in any way. And it seems like more females, now it could be wrong here. This is a total generalization, but it seems like more female trainers do take that into account. And even if you talk to them about it, if they haven't taken it into account, if you talk to them about it, it's at least something that they can relate to and potentially modify your program on. So find a trainer in your town, in your city, have them assess your movement and your strength. So maybe you buy a pack, like a you know, couple of sessions with them, have them assess your movement and your strength and have them show you around the gym, um, how certain machines work. And this may seem like a little silly. However, for women in particular, the intimidation in a traditional gym is not something to ignore. Okay. So when we think about like, there's usually like a woman's area, which is fine, but if you want to go and lift heavy weights and uh, on, this is not a knock on the women's area. Cause sometimes I'll train in there, um, myself, but there's like maximum 15 pounds in there. And it's like, okay, what am I going to train 15? Like at this point in the game, uh, you know, I could do that with my big toe. Like I need the big, I need the big boy weights. I need the big girl weights. Right. So going into, let's say the area where the barbells are, where the free weights are, can be very, very, very intimidating. So I don't want you to to underestimate that. So if you have a trainer kind of walk you through, um, you're going to kind of get a sense of like where everything is, which is one thing, right? And then in the, uh, you know, in that sort of what can be a more male dominated area, you'll kind of learn where all the things are. You can set out a flow for yourself And then hopefully the trainer can create a couple of programs for you so that when you are working with them and then when you're on your own, you can, you can go into that area with confidence and not feel like you're, uh, you know, you know, that you're like a baby giraffe with like, you know, wobbly legs, not much balance, basically falling all over the place. Right. So it's really nice to have someone sort of show you the ropes. I mean, if there's already a gym member that, you know, there that can show you the ropes, that's awesome too. But I really like the idea of getting an assessment, um, from the trainer and then putting together some type of program for you. So when we're thinking about programming or programmatics, a, a foundational base of strength. Okay. Uh, so these are kind of the low hanging fruit for some of those newbie gains, which is, um, all, all to say that when you are first starting to weight train someone who let's say is weight training alongside me, let's say is going to make faster gains than I am in the same amount of time, because there's going to be a much more rapid turnover of muscle cells in the newbie than let's say someone like me, who's been lifting for, for forever. So when we're thinking about 
the, and I'm going to answer this as a, so there's a lot of different goals that a lot of women can have. I'm going to answer this kind of on par with what my goals are and what I see most of like the majority of women that I work with, they're looking to create more of an hourglass figure. So kind of like a widening, let's say of the top, a coming in or a slimming of the hips and then like a flare, I'm sorry, coming in at the waist and then a flare um, at the hips. So I, in order to do that, we want to be thinking about developing strength in the legs. So primarily in the glutes, right? So we want to be growing the booty, hamstrings and quads. We want a beautiful uh, kind of uh, plump uh, hamstring in the back that you can kind of sink your teeth into. And then from the front, we want more of a quad sweep. So in, again, in that sort of flare, the vastus lateralis, which is the uh, outer part, let's say, of the quadricep, we want to develop the vastus lateralis. There's a couple other muscles, sartorius and, 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 and what have you, that are going to also contribute to that sort of flare. And then in the upper body, we want to be thinking about capping out the shoulders. So developing the frontal of the front delts, the medial delt, the posterior delt, and then developing the latissimus dorsi or called the lats, usually called the lats. Um, And then just the back in general. And I'll just, uh, again, pulling from my, my chiropractic background, because we are seated, this is also a functional approach to developing a better body and better body composition as well. Because when we are thinking about the back and focusing in on, like I actually don't do a lot of chest work. Uh, And the reason for that is I sit at a desk. I'm sitting here recording this for you right now. I sit when I, as I was preparing what I was going to be talking about today, I sat at a desk, I had a Google doc open, et cetera. So I'm already sitting in kind of a shortened pec position, right? So I do have ergonomic chairs and stuff that I try to, you know, lean back in and what have you, but I'm bent over. I'm in that, in like the pecs are short, you know, the internal rotation of that shoulder can kind of creep in creating sort of a longer and weaker back. So as a general rule, if you do want to be working your chest, I typically will work uh, the back like three times as often as I do the chest. And in my case, I don't even work the chest at all. Like I do some, you know, if I'm doing, let's say an incline dumbbell press, uh, where I'm trying to hit the, uh, the front lats, like, sure, you're going to get, you're going to get some chest, like you're always going to get some, but it's not a chest specific, um, program. So legs, we want to work glutes, hams, quads, and then upper body, we want to be working on shoulders and back, right? So like thinking about like flaring, think about your lats as your angel wings. We want to be able to (laughs) flare the angel wings. And then think about like the shoulders as like the bread bun, right? We want to have like a nice, uh, defined, um, lateral protrusion or coronal plane protrusion of the, uh, of the deltoid muscle. And so when you're thinking about, so now we have the muscles. So now we want to think about the order in which we want to work them as a general rule, compound movements to start, meaning multi-joint movements. So a multi-joint movement in the lower body would be a squat. It would be a lunge. It would be a hip thruster in the upper body. It would be a pull-up. It would be a barbell row. It would be a one-armed row. It would be, um, those would be some examples. So you're moving like some of the big muscles in the body and you're using the shoulder and the elbow, let's say in the upper body in order to facilitate that. Uh, and then the lower body obviously is going to be the knees and the, and the hips and then the ankles as well. So we start with multi-joints and then we moved to, well, then we'll move as the, as the workout progresses into more of a single joint, 
um, exercise. So in the lower body, that might mean a hamstring curl machine. It might mean a quadricep, like a knee extension machine. Uh, in the upper body, we could be doing the shoulders. Like it could be like, a, even though technically, uh, we'll just, we'll just count the deltoids as like a, a single joint, even though there's a couple of joints that are working, but single joint movement. Uh, I mean the, the, the scapula is rotating and moving as well, but We'll, we'll just for the, for, for simplicity, we'll call the deltoids like a single joint movement. So you might do like your lateral raises, let's say towards the end of a program versus starting off with them or a frontal raise, let's say, um, at the end of the program versus, uh, starting off with them. A better example actually of a single joint movement is like a bicep curl or a tricep extension, right? Because we are, even though we're technically still, I guess we're technically still doing two joints because the bicep crosses both the shoulder and the elbow. Okay. I'm getting tripped up all in my head now. So let's just, let's just go with like multi-joint to single joint, um, movement. Now the only exception to this the only exception to this, Betty's, is if you never feel, uh, if you never feel a muscle when you are doing it, you can start with a single joint exercise. So, for example, if you are doing a squat, and I used to hear this all the time in practice, if you are doing a squat and you never feel your butt, let's say you're like, nope, I feel it all in my quads, I would probably get you to start off with a glute only exercise. So maybe that's banded, uh, abductions, right? Or you can go on the abductor machine if you're working in a gym or you can do crab walks, which is basically like a banded, like you have a booty band around your knees or your ankles if you want to make it harder. And then like literally sitting in a squat position and then walking sideways one way and then returning on the other, on the other leg and then going into the squat because that initial kind of priming, if you will, is going to help you feel that muscle more in the compound movement. So if you're someone who's like, God, I just never feel my butt when I'm doing a squat, um, you can try pre or priming the, um, the squat with, let's say a specific glute exercise. Now, if you're someone who does a squat and you kind of don't feel it anywhere, that's fine. It's just specifically if you're like, no, I totally feel it in my quads. I totally feel it on my hamstrings. I totally feel it in, you know, in my back, but I don't feel it in my butt. That's where we want to, that's where we want to sort of do that single joint movement. And I could get into the why around glute amnesia or lower cross syndrome, but the, the basics of it is the same reason why I like to train back more often than I train chest, if at all, is because we are sitting on our butt all the time in an elongated position. So, uh, if you are a chiropractor, you may know, or if you're a clinician who, uh, is interested in body work, you may know of dynamic neuro, um, muscular stabilization or DNS, uh, or you may have heard the term lower cross syndrome. This is really describing the compensatory mechanisms, let's say in the low back and in, at the knee joint, because our glutes are not activating, right? So this is a very, very, very common thing to have glutes that don't activate in the way that they should, because we sit on them. And if you are in perimenopause, you have been probably sitting on your asset, pun intended, wah, wah. Uh, you've been probably sitting for 20 years, right? So it's very, and your glutes will turn off. Your glutes are not you know, it's like kind of use it or lose it, right? If your glutes are not being used, uh, they are going to, you're going to downregulate the neuromuscular connection there. So it's going to be harder for you to 
kind of have that mind muscle connection to the glute specifically. So that's, that's kind of how you might think about structuring it, right? So I've given you the muscles, I've given you the order, a little bit of an exception. I'll give you a concrete example. Currently my current split is a little more volume, um, than I'm doing a six day split. I normally am really happy with a four or five, but I am just really wanting to grow my shoulders even more right now. So right now I have three lower body days and three upper body days. Um, so the lower body days I split into, uh, so like the first lower body day is more of a quad focus. Now I will say that I'm, I'm doing, let's say on my quad day, I'm doing like goblet squats, like elevated heel goblet squats, which are supposed to activate the quad more and they do, but that's not to say that I'm not using my butt and my hamstring. So I still am using other, uh, muscles, but I am focusing more on the quads. So day one is going to be like more of a quad focus day. Day two for the lower body is going to be like more of a hamstring and glute day. And then day three is just glutes. So I just have a monster glute day. Um, usually on a Sunday when I have more time to just do my butt. Okay. And then the three upper body days are two shoulders and one back. So, um, and then with every, uh, with every upper body day, I'm always doing pull-ups because I'm really, really, really trying to do 10. I really, really, really want to do 10 in a row. Uh, and I just have not been able to kind of punch back, punch past seven. Like I have seven and then I'm just done. So trying to, trying to increase my, um, my capacity for pull-ups. So I have three uppers, three lowers. Now to be clear, I am not recommending that you start that. I have been training for many, many years. I would recommend that you start one day a week. So that might be one full body day a week. So you do some lower, some upper, it's all compound movements, right? So you're doing some squats, some lunges, and then you're doing some pulls, maybe doing some scapular retractions because you're trying to do pull-ups. And then you move into more of the ISO, like the single joint movements, like, like you get to the hamstring curl machine, or maybe you do the quad extension machine, maybe you do the abductor machine, etc. Um, and then I also say currently for me, because uh, people always ask, okay, so that's your resistance training. What about cardio? Currently cardio is just like how many steps I have in a day. So I don't have like a specified cardio day. Like I don't have, you know, when I'm my day off. So I train six days, I have one day off. I'll make sure that I walk a lot on that day. I may, if I have energy, go to the gym and like do the step mill, but that's sort of really inconsistent. I'm trying to clock somewhere between six to eight, like six to 8,000 steps is sort of my target that I have for myself. Um, and I usually, uh, when I am walking, it is happening after dinner. It's usually with the kids. Um, maybe sometimes it's a family bike ride, which is so annoying because my aura ring does not know how to count my bike. So it's almost like I didn't even do it, but you know, my activity, let's say is what you might call low intensity, steady state or LISS for short. Um, I'll also take my, uh, son. Sometimes I'll do like mummy sunny dates where I'll just take one of my kids, one of my sons out and we'll either go for a run. We'll play soccer together. Um, I'm planning on taking just to kind of wrap up the, uh, snow season, uh, here in Ontario, uh, just taking him on a cross country. Like I'm going to take my, um, my older son, just me and him. We're going to go cross country skiing, which I'm really excited about. And they would absolutely kill me if they knew I was telling you about our mummy sunny date. So I am just trusting that you're going to keep it on the DL for me there as well. Okay. So that's exercise, right? So now we've talked about stress management for perimenopause. 
and exercise. Progressive, uh, actually, let me say one more thing about progressive overload. Progressive overload, when I said it in the beginning, the idea is that we want to be putting on muscle mass. Like ideally, that's what we want to be doing. What that means is that let's say you create a program for yourself and you say, okay, I'm going to give myself two months, right? I'm going to have this program for eight weeks. I'm going to do like, call it two to three days a week of training. By the end of the eight weeks, the, the amount of weight that you are squatting, pressing, pulling, lunging should have increased. That's progressive overload. So if you start off with 15s, let's say by the end of the eight weeks, hopefully you've progressed to 17.5s, let's say, or even more. Um, so that's one way that you can, um, increase muscle. The other way that you can increase is through volume, which is one of the strategies that I'm doing right now, which with, with that sixth day of training. So you can add on volume. So you can have another, uh, training day. You can do more reps. If you feel like you have it, you can do more sets if you feel like you have it as well. So lots of options. You just have to get your hands dirty and play, right? So this is another area for you to explore what works for you. And this would be in addition to the uh, stress management, the most important thing that you can be doing, putting on muscle, because that is going to help your resilience, right? So it's going to help with your, I mean, literally it's called resistance training. So you are training your resistance. So it's helping with your resilience. It's helping you deal with those stressors that we were talking about from above and below. Um, it's growing your muscles, it's growing your brain, it's augmenting and helping your immune system function like a goddess. Uh, it's going to help you sleep better. Resistance training has also been shown to help with that progesterone and estrogen balance. So if you are in phase one or phase two of perimenopause, like we were talking about before, and the, um, uh, maybe you're running estrogen dominant where you don't have enough progesterone weight training tends to help with that as well. All right. So we are at nutrition. Now we have been talking about actionable items for stress management and exercise. Now, nutrition is one of those things that is going to vary wildly like a mother. Okay. From person to person. Um, so I would recommend as a starting place, if you haven't already read my book, The Betty Body, we'll link it in the show notes, start there. Um, we, especially if you are looking for weight loss and rapid weight loss, starting off with some of the protocols that I outline there for nutrition are going to help with that. And then hopefully um, you are going to be able to transition out from sort of an acute weight loss phase into more of a maintenance phase where you are eating for sustenance, where you are eating for nourishing your cells and you're eating for happiness and joy. So that's all outlined in so much detail in the book. And I will say that if you are someone who is feeling like her hormones are out of whack, like progesterone and estrogen levels are out of whack, maybe your testosterone levels are out of whack. Maybe you have extra weight that you want to lose. Or in the book, I talk about some of the different hormonal derangements, let's say, so PCOS and endometriosis and adenomyosis and Hashimoto's and all the, and all the things. There is going to be a, call it, therapeutic intervention. You know, there's going to be a diet that you follow when you are metabolically or hormonally ill. And then there's going to be the, then there's going to be the diet that you follow for the long term. Okay. So in the beginning, 
let's say. So I often get this question like, are fruits bad? Like, can I have fruits? And it's like, okay, well, if you have blood glucose regulation issues, maybe you should restrict your fruits for a time. That doesn't mean that fruits are bad. Fruits are excellent and they should be a mainstay of any maintenance protocol. They have polyphenols, they have fiber, they have, and each one has its own full complement of, uh, you know, xenohormetic stressors that are going to make us stronger and better with time. But if you're unable let's say if you have some, I don't know, if you have dates or pineapple, which are very, very sugary. Um, and they also have a lot of like pineapple has bromelain in it, really, really great for, uh, you know, kind of in higher doses, really great for arthritis. There's so many great things about these fruits, but if you have blood sugar regulation issues, maybe you want to restrict them for a while. And so I can't underscore this enough. The, the, the diet that you follow when you are ill, when you are metabolically ill, when you are hormonally ill is not the same that you will follow when you have fixed it. So personally, if you read the book or you have read the book, you know that I struggled with estrogen dominance in my twenties, in my teens and my twenties and most of my thirties, because I was overstressed. I had a whole host of, uh, you know, whole host of environmental, uh, and nutritional, um, regimens and, and demands that I wasn't able to meet appropriately. And so, I followed a certain diet to help rid me of those problems, of those ills. And now the the food and the the planning that I typically follow is more higher protein, let's say, uh, depending like right now I'm having, you know, higher carbohydrate than I, you know, than I ever, ever really have. Um, but I sort of have like a, what might be called more of a balanced, um, uh, macronutrient and caloric makeup of my diet. So somewhere between 30 and 50 grams of protein at every meal. And I have three meals a day, uh, and then less carbohydrates than that. I would probably say, I don't like 20 to 30, call it grams of, of carbs at each meal. And then the, and the rest, the fill is the fat, right? No alcohol. I don't drink any alcohol. I do have alcohol maybe once or twice a year, at Christmas, we have a beautiful bottle of red that I really like, uh, and I'll have a glass or two, and then maybe thanks, maybe Thanksgiving. But Christmas is when I'm like, yep, I'm having the cheesecake, I'm having the lasagna, I'm having the whatever, and I don't care, and I'm having my wine. But the rest of the year, I have no alcohol. When my hormones were an absolute gong show, okay, so teens and twenties. And then I ha- you know, became pregnant in my early thirties, um, becoming a mother, being sleep deprived, worrying about my career, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my diet was much more of a female, uh, supportive or female centric ketogenic diet to bring down inflammation, to help with water retention, to help with that estrogen progesterone balance. Um, so check out the book if you haven't, we'll have a link in the, in the show notes, but, um, these are some of the mainstays right now in terms of my fitness, in terms of my, um, my goals. So right now, as I mentioned before, like I'm trying to build out these shoulder boulders. Like I want them to enter the room before I do. So I want, I'm on big shoulders. Uh, so that I'm trying to put on, so I'm having, you know, on that, that 30 to 50 gram protein per meal, it's probably closer to 50 every single, uh, every, like I'm probably clocking in at about 150 grams easily 
of protein a day. So that's what I'm doing right now. I know there was a lot of questions around how to cycle the diet, which is all outlined in the book. If you are someone who is perimenopausal, let's say, and you're like, God, but I don't know when my period's coming. Like, I don't know where I am in my cycle, then don't cycle, right? So then what you might think about doing is follow that female-centric ketogenic style diet for a month or two or three, depending on how much weight you have to lose and depending on some of the subjective and objective measurements that may change. So like your hip measurement, waist measurement, how you're digesting things, how you're sleeping, what your libido is like, what your energy is like, how your genes are fitting, like all these sort of non-scale victories and the scale as well. I don't like the scale too much because it can be a little bit of a mind F, right? But um, I would say looking at the scale directionally, if you can weigh yourself, I don't like you really weighing yourself and as a woman, any more than twice a month. Um, and then I want you to try to weigh yourself at the same point in, in your cycle. So in, you know, if you, if your cycles are irregular, when you do get your period measure yourself then, right? Because that's, we know that you're in week one at that point. Um, but don't worry about cycling the diet, follow the 70, 20, 10 that I talk about in the Betty body for a couple of months. And then you can maybe move into phase two of the diet where you're not necessarily cycling with the menstrual cycle, but you just stick to one macronutrient ratio. So maybe like right now I'm probably following like a 40, 40, 20, you might just stick with that, stay with that and stick with it. So that might be how you might cycle the diet if you don't know exactly where you are in your cycle, or if you've had some type of surgical, you know, I had a lot of questions about what, what if I have a a hysterectomy, I had an oophorectomy, I have one ovary, I have half an ovary, you know, then don't just don't cycle. If you don't know where you are in your cycle, you can't pair up the different macros to it. So you can just stick with one and double down on that isocalorically, as long as we're generally having the same calories through the cycle, you're still going to get the benefits there. I just want to always make sure that you're getting enough protein, right? So think about protein, um, think about protein first, like trying to get somewhere between 20 and 30 grams at a minimum at every meal. And then if you're like me and you're trying to put on muscle, your shoulders are trying to walk into the room before you do, then you may think about upping that. Uh, and there seems to be kind of a ceiling for muscle growth from protein. It seems like if you've listened to my conversation with Alan Aragon, um, I think we were talking about a ceiling of 50 grams. It doesn't see, it seems that there's like some diminishing returns. So if you have 60 grams or 70 grams or 80 grams of protein, you're not going to get this linear increase in muscle protein synthesis. It does seem to peter off at about 50 grams of protein. So 30 to 50 grams is kind of my range right now. And I will plug my, I'll put the link in the show notes, but my everyone's like, okay, so how do you get that much protein? I do it through whey protein powder. Okay. So you have to get in touch with your inner protein powder girl. Okay. And I put like one or two scoops in each of the scoops is like 25 ish grams of protein. So two scoops is like 50 right there. So get in touch with your inner whey protein. Um, so I love a company called Shkinusa. Uh, I'll link them in the show notes. We have a, a code for, I think it's 10% off of the entire store, but it is my favorite. Pro- I've tried probably more protein powders, uh, in my life than I would like to admit. And this is by far my favorite. No GI distress tastes amazing. It's just, it's the best. It's, it's the best. Just trust me. If you're in Canada and the U S um, I do believe that they have a European presence because I know that they sponsor a lot of international. I know they sponsor tennis and things like that, but, uh, the, te- you know, um, tennis, usually we see that in, in Europe, but at, at least in Canada and the U S 
you're going to be able to have access to it. So I'll make sure that's in the show notes as well. So let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. So you can still have a great, this was another big question. I think that a lot of people were maybe afraid to ask, um, you can still have a great sex life in perimenopause and beyond, really. I want I want to reframe and rebrand. I want menopause to have a rebrand, actually. Um, and that is to say that I want menopause to be, I want you to look at menopause as like the second spring. As I was mentioning before with dropping progesterone, you know, wildly vacillating and oscillating levels of estrogen, uh, we can see vaginal dryness, we can see decreased pelvic floor muscle strength, and you couple that with pregnancy uh, and delivery, certain Certainly we can have a pelvic floor that is not as strong as maybe it should be. Vaginal atrophy, less sensitivity in the clitoris as well with dropping estrogen and dropping testosterone um, as well. Testosterone famous for libido, right? Uh, in perimenopause, it also drops there too. Uh, it can drop our libido. There are a couple of things that are kind of working against our sex game, right? In, in perimenopause. So a couple of things I want to uh, mention here, pelvic floor exercises for the win, FTW ladies, get yourself an app. There's a couple of different great apps that um, you can just download and it'll say, you know, you can do them every day and it'll kind of count you down for you to hold for 10 seconds and release then hold for 10 seconds and release. Do your Kegels. Okay. So not a fan of Kegels if you're pregnant. I don't think that that is important. It's, a, it's an entirely different conversation. If you're pregnant, no Kegels, right? We want to open that, that space up for pregnancy. We want to open it up for delivery. After you've had the kid, we want to Kegel that shit up. So we want to be like a, a regular regimen of pelvic floor exercises. Um, as I was saying before, maybe some extra foreplay, maybe we get some lube. Um, absolutely, you can be enjoying a plethora of orgasms in perimenopause and menopause. And let me tell you, for men and women, this is where we run the advantage because as many orgasms as we can get is going to have absolutely a positive influence on our stress, which we were talking about um, before. Um, but it's also going to, I mean, there's so many things, but like it lights up the brain like a mother effing Christmas tree. Okay. So when we see, so it helps with all the vitals, lowers blood pressure, lowers heart rate, uh, increases blood saturation, increases or lowers respiratory rate overall. I mean, certainly while you're kind of climaxing, all of those things are, are changed, but after the orgasm on the way down, all of your vitals improve and your brain lights up like a Christmas tree. Okay. Motor cortex is awake. Frontal cortex is awake. Everything is awake and functioning and firing. So if you are someone who is like, oh my gosh, why am I walking into this room? I can't, where, where did I put my keys or where did I put my phone or whatever? What you might need is a your favorite vibrator <laughs> or Kegels or your partner, or maybe you read some erotica, or maybe you know you and your partner try something different. You try some lube, etc. Okay. I would also say for your sex life, and this is again said with love, cut out the alcohol. Cut out the alcohol. Um you may feel like the filters, let's say your, your, uh, inhibitions, uh, are lowered. 
with alcohol consumption, but you and your partner, um, this is going to decrease blood flow. Like it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not when we're talking about libido and sex life and like having a juicy animalistic primal, or even just a soft and sweet romantic encounter, cut out the alcohol. Trust me. You'll thank me later. So we have been talking now. I'm looking at the. I'm looking at the time that we've been recording. We're cl- We're we're moving up on to about an hour and a half. I still have to talk about all the supplements, and then I want to get into hormone replacement therapy. So I feel like this is a really good place for me to pause. Uh, and we will do next week. We will do part two. So next week with part two, we're going to be talking about supplements. So we've talked about some of the foundational basics. Now we've talked about the sleep. We've talked about the exercise. We've talked about the nutrition and sex life a little bit. I want to jump into supplementation and hormone replacement therapy. Another big question. What do I take? How do I take it? When should I start? Do I start a menopause? Do I start, you know, all of these questions I want to be answering for you. So we are going to pick it up for next week on supplements and we are going to have all the links for all the supplements that I recommend, uh, in my, I have a little, Amazon storefront. So they'll all be linked there for you. And then we're going to talk about, uh, progesterone, bioidentical hormones, how to use them, what are the best kinds, all the things, when we should start all the things. So I hope that this has been helpful for you. Please let me know if it has been. So you can leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, if you're listening to this on Apple podcasts, Spotify, I believe you can give it a rating. Um, and I try to read, I actually do read all of the comments and all the ratings and all the reviews that come in for the show because it helps direct my programming. So if this was helpful for you, let me me know. So with that, I bid you adieu and we will do part two next week. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.